0: One of the things that on-sighting or flashing brings to the table is a heightened level of adaptability and decision making when it counts the most. Like it's high stakes. If you fall off, it's done. You don't get another try to on-site or to flash.
1: Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show's Pro Clinic on flashing and onsighting with a tactical master and climber coach who just loves this aspect of climbing, Mr. Chris Hampton. Now as most of you are likely familiar, Chris joined the pod last season as our expert on tactics where we talked a little bit about the art and science of onsighting and I have been excited to devote an entire episode to that topic for a long time now and let me tell you, It was worth the wait, you guys. Chris brings the goods today as he first explains the difference between onsighting and flashing, and he shares why that type of climbing will make us better at red pointing, sport, and boulder grades, and also a little um, test that we can kind of give ourselves to understand whether we should be trying hard on our red pointing or whether we should be focusing more on flashing and onsighting. And then he gets detailed and actionable with some really fantastic tips, tricks, and exercises, that we can all do to level up our climbing when we only get one shot at doing the thing. Now, whether you're looking to flash your first 513, something that Chris has done by the way, or like me, you haven't put much thought or work into on-sighting or flashing, this pro clinic is guaranteed to get you stoked and leave you better prepared to pull onto a route or a boulder for the first time and send it. Now, the first 30 minutes or so of this Pro Clinic are brought to you ad-free and at zero cost, thanks to the patrons and subscribers of this show. And right now, y'all can join the Struggle fam and get instant access to all sorts of amazing bonus content, including the full Pro Clinic here with Chris, for absolutely zero charge or obligation. What? That's right. I'm super pumped, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in just a bit. But first, let's pull on and give it everything with chris hampton well dude it's fantastic to see you i'm psyched to chat you're fresh in my ears right now too because written in stone was just released yesterday yeah it's really exciting to have
0: it out for everyone you know i've been working on this thing for quite a while at this point and it's really fun to see people engaging with it and to hear from people you know who are learning things from it and getting excited about it then we've got some big ones coming this season you know i'll let the cat out of the bag you a little tease bit any here of them? but Yeah, we've got Ondra, we've got Magos, I've got Steve McClure and Buster Martin, and Beth Rodden is going to come on later to talk about Lynn Hill again. I'm saying too much now, but we've got some great episodes coming. And some bonuses Mm -hmm. along the way, just some interesting things that I've sort of discovered in the research or dots that I've connected in the research that I'm really excited to delve into more. So they'll go a little off script, for these bonus
1: episodes, but they're going to be really fun. Oh man, I'm I'm so psyched. The '90s, so much happened in the '90s, man. Like it's crazy when yeah. you think about like the explosion. I mean, you just mentioned Lynn Hill's name twice. She could probably be mentioned a few times. In fact, when you're talking about the 1990s totally. and what she was able to accomplish, <laughs> and it's funny because I had Lynn on the show, and I was like, it's probably the worst interview I've ever done because I was so starstruck. I just I feel kept... that way about my Katie interview.
0: <laughs> I've known Katie for most of my climbing career, but I'm still starstruck by her.
1: I love that. I thought your your interview with Katie was fantastic. And you know, it's so interesting for me, even again, having had Lynn on the show, so talking to her and also understanding her career, listening to this episode, I learned so much about, you know, like when you dive into the history of kind of this ethic of hang-dogging and kind of mm. the two sides, the tradies and the New Age and... And how Lynn kind of sat a little bit in a surprising position on that for those who haven't heard the episode yet. But also this 14A route in kind of this, I don't know, misogynistic, you know, veil over it. I I was aware of, but the way you tell the story and the way that you Mm. build to that really thrilling conclusion, it's one of those things where like, even though it's history and you maybe know what's going to come, I was still got like. Goosebumps at the end of it. So I, my hats off to you for the storytelling, the sound design, because it brought these maybe one-liner things that you knew, like oh yeah, Lynn Hill did that. But it like it brought such drama in conflict and stakes and ultimate payoff yeah. to it. I just really enjoyed the ride, man. I, I can't wait for the rest of the season. Good. I'm glad that came
0: through. That's kind of the goal, is to you know. We're in an age where we get to hear from all of these heroes that we have, right? We have access to them. And I think that's really cool. But I also want to preserve some of that mythology and legend, you know, and I feel like I have to build it this way to preserve that. And some of the best compliments I've gotten on this thing are, you know, I've sent episodes to a lot of the pros I've talked to to talk about you know, these ascents and these climbers that they're inspired by. And so far, several of them have been like, man, I got so psyched. I booked a ticket right after listening to your episode. I had to go back to the Frank and Jura, you know? So that, that feels so Dude. cool to me to be able to inspire these folks with the stories about these roots that they love.
1: Oh my gosh, that's so rad. Well, I'm psyched. And having just listened to Katie Brown, which you just mentioned, of course, and you're tee up for that, talking about her on-site of Omaha mm. Beach. I'm excited to maybe wrap that into the lens of this conversation, of course, which is going to be talking about flashing and on and how epic for her to walk up to that route, yeah. not knowing anything about it, and do what she did on it. And here at the Red, where, of course, it's my home crag and has been for you know your all of your formative climbing, you yeah. very well know the Madness Cave. You spent a lot of time out there. That's a pretty intimidating place to to march up to and just hop on a line and and actually send totally. it. So what a great springboard for us to maybe talk about flashing and onsighting. And I'd love to, before we get into the specifics, just hear a little bit about how your climbing has been going this season and if flashing and onsighting has been a focus for you at all. Or I know you're also working through this road to 513s, which. I'm on a road to 1 513. So we're on a similar road. It's just we're, we're on the know. same
0: road. You're just starting on your road.
1: <laughs> 99 <laughs> miles back that way. But yeah, how, how's it been going for you?
0: It's been going as well as can be expected, I think. You know, my time has been severely limited by having a baby and being a stay-at-home dad for all but two days of the week. So I don't get a ton of time outside, especially because my other baby, which is written in stone, has taken up a lot of those days where Harper's at daycare, you know. But I've been getting out, you know, once a week-ish. Three times a month is probably the average right now. And I'm knocking out 513s pretty quickly. I think the longest one has taken me so far is six tries and feeling pretty good at it. But I've been having a lot of fun, like... Getting my feet back under me as a sport climber, you know i sent I spent several years just bouldering, and to get my feet back under me as a sport climber, I've been doing a lot of trying to on site easy twelve to mid twelve and mm. it's tough to on site out here because the rock is white and it's really. Sequential, so you can very easily mess up a sequence and not be able to reverse it. Whereas, you know, somewhere like the red, there are lots of options that you can choose from. But I've been having a lot of fun just trying to on site things and getting back into that headspace and that mindset that I loved intensely for a number of years in my early sport
1: climbing. I certainly can empathize with the limited bandwidth yeah. and availability to get out and spend a full day at the crag when you've got a family and multiple jobs and other passions and these kinds of things. But, you know, how perfect quick sends then become for those of us who want to go out and have a really fun day and maybe not hang dog in one or two bolts, you know, trying to dial in a perfect thing. Sometimes that's fun. That's kind of the season that I'm in right now, in fact. But I try to still get out at least a couple times a month with friends who are projecting other things or maybe when we're warming up and try to get these quick sends, which is a little bit different than really going for a flash in an on-site. And so I'm interested in peeling all of this back with you. You've got a great long lens to look through both as a climber and a coach. And maybe the best place for us to start here is to try to define and differentiate on-site from flash, which may be easier said than done, but why don't you take a crack at it?
0: Yeah, so I think first we should start by defining what a red point is, just for folks who don't know, because an onside and a flash are both types of a red point. And a red point just essentially means you climb from bottom to top with no falls or weighting of the rope. And that includes takes. If you say take, you didn't fall, but you still weighted the rope. Um, So when you red point, you don't weight the rope. You really only needed the rope to get down, not to aid you during the climb. And both onsighting and flashing are forms of red pointing, but both mean that you did it on the first attempt. And just a note here, not first attempt of the day. Day flash isn't a term, really. You guys can have <laughs> it. I suggest we strike it from the lexicon entirely, but I'll let you guys have it. Flashing is first attempt. Onsighting is first attempt. The difference is that... The way we use it now is that on site and flash on site means you don't have any information other than what you can gather on your own. Flashing means you could have anything from a one bit of beta to watching a bunch of videos totally dialed in beta, someone' spraying beta at you the whole time. So flash constitutes this big range. And you know interesting historical note here is that they used to be interchangeable when somewhere around the mid eighties, Jim Bridwell was the first person to use the term flash just as a, they got up at the first time. And that was in his, I think actually the mid eighties is when it started to change. That was in his 1973 article called brave new world. It was about free climbing in Yosemite. And those two terms eventually became. And when I started climbing, they were, on-site flash and beta flash. So those eventually got shortened to on-site and flash and made separate. So so an on-site is a form of a flash. It's just done with only the intel you can gather yourself without asking someone who's done it. And then there's lots of gray area.
1: Yeah. And to understand that last point on the on-site, the intel that you gather yourself is You're talking about standing underneath the climb, not necessarily being on YouTube ahead of time and gathering intel that way. Right, right. truly not knowing anything about the route or the moves aside from what you can see at the cliff or the boulder. Yeah, if
0: you watch someone climbing it, that blows your on Got Um, it, got it. So if you see how any of the moves are done or which of the holds should be used or any of the sequences, that automatically puts you in flash territory.
1: And then Flash, to your point, it could be one little bit of beta, it could be a month of research on YouTube, and it could be as you're climbing, having somebody stand at the base who's climbed that route a ton of times saying, okay, left hand up two inches, no, skip that pocket, that's a trap, go to the next one. It can literally be somebody essentially narrating the climb for you. The challenge, of course, in either of these, but to different degrees, is that You haven't been on the climb, so you don't know the body positions. You don't know even if somebody says, hey, the next one is good. Maybe it's good for them. It's not good for you. So it's obviously more challenging than if you were to work the route, if you were to work it on a top rope or bolt to bolt it. But there's a big difference, it sounds like to me, and certainly from my experience, there's a huge difference between a true on-site and a flash where you've taken in a ton of information.
0: Totally. Big, mega difference. It's much harder to figure things out on the go, as anyone who's climbed a lot knows.
1: Now, what about this notion of the draws Mm -hmm. being hung or not hung Mm -hmm. on a sport route? Yeah,
0: that's all. So there are things we've accepted as, okay, fine, these will still count for an on-site. Things like there's chalk on the route, there's tick marks, there's Mm. draws hanging, all of that stuff in the old times may not have been considered an on-site. It wasn't even considered a red point at one point if the draws were hanging. You had to hang your own draws for it to count. That pretty mm-hmm. quickly in, you know, once sport climbing took hold, that pretty quickly changed. But yeah, that's sort of where the gray area comes in. We've sort of blurred the lines more and more as climbers have gotten better and they've gotten more interested in this game of on-siting and flashing we've blurred the lines quite a bit.
1: Yeah, there's very few things climbers love to talk about ad nauseum more than (laughs) either grades or knee pads or maybe the intricacies of the difference between a flash and an on-site. So we'll try to keep ourselves from falling down too much of a black hole there. But I'm curious your opinion, just as it comes to kind of the ethic and is there anything kind of specific in your mind, this is just an opinion. I'm not asking you to speak for the entire listening community or climbing community here, but is there something that for you would tip an onsite into a flash territory?
0: Yeah. I think an easy way to tell if something turned your on-site into a flash is, did it change how you were going to climb it? And I'll give you a couple examples here. Number one, I onsighted a 12D years ago here in Sinks Canyon, and I saw a photo of the bottom boulder problem. And when I was looking through the guidebook, there was a photo of a woman on the bottom boulder problem. So I could see what she was doing there. But that's also how I had already read it. That's the way I was right. going to climb the boulder problem. It was fairly obvious. So I still considered that an site. But years before, at the Red, one of my first 12D on-site attempts was on a route called Peace Frog at the Sanctuary. And I was climbing it, and I was on and I was climbing well, but I was getting a little pumped. And I was three-quarters of the way up or something. And someone on the ground said, get a good shake there. And the first thought in my head was, I'm not at a hold where I can shake. And I looked down, and I had just missed a rest hold. It was off to the right Mm -hmm. a little bit, and I had missed it, and I just climbed right past it. So I climbed down to that rest hold, I shook out, and then I finished the route. And I was like, you know what? I can't take an on-site for that because that person gave me a crucial piece of information that changed the way I was climbing it. Um, If someone would have shouted up beta that I was already doing, I'm still taking the on-site. So... That's sure. my own personal blurred line. Is did something change the way I would have climbed it?
1: That's how I discern. I like too. that. And everything to to some extent with climbing for, for those of us who are not sponsored athletes and getting paid for clipping the chains yeah. on any given route. It really is a personal thing. And if you add an asterisk, and you know that makes you feel better about you know the the climb in that manner, or or you don't, it's more about kind of being honest with ourselves and. Uh, to some extent, honest, I, I guess, with the community, if we're going to be sharing it and that kind of thing. But for the most yeah. part, nobody really cares all that much. I'll, I'll give just a little counterpoint to that. Not, maybe not a counterpoint, but just a slightly different perspective is my hardest flash to date was Return of Chris Snyder at Roadside mm, it's an 11D. Such a great route, just so long. And I didn't know anything about it, but my buddy wanted to give it a go first. And he climbed just the bottom section, which is kind of like a interesting like slabby vert type thing before it kicks into the never-ending hull to the chains. And he got up to where you have to pull into the kind of the steep section and mm-hmm. just decided that he wasn't feeling it and he lowered off. And so I, I saw how he did that. I was belaying him. He hung the few draws, you know, on, on the bottom there. I climbed up through that. And then hung the other like nine draws that came after that and, and made it to the top. And so I kind of considered it like an 80% onsite, but I feel like it was more of an onsite than a flash, but we're, you know, again, we're maybe pulling hairs here that don't necessarily need to be up pulled. But I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of a fun, never ending circular discussion amongst climbers.
0: Yeah, totally. And you're right. It's very personal. I was just listening to Jonathan Segrist talk about this on Climbing Gold, and I liked Mm -hmm. his his idea that, you know, the more we disclose uh, and the more upfront we are about things as a community in general, you know, the more it sort of creates that paradigm and makes it so that we're all playing roughly the same game anyway. So I do like the honesty part of it you know, we all have our own gray area and it's very personal for everybody. I've seen, in fact, I gave move by move beta to a pro climber who I shall not name. One of the best boulders in the world gave him beta move by move for take that Katie Brown. He flashed it and then he logged it on 8A as an on-site. And I'm like, you didn't onsite a single move of that, you know. That's taking it a little far, in
1: my opinion,
0: whether that's his right. personal view of on-siting or not.
1: Yeah, I think it's there. there's at least a clear enough line between, you know, getting a ton of information and having zero information where we should be able to make that distinction. Now, that said, and uh, I will invite um, a spirited discussion into the comments of this Instagram post when this episode comes out, but that said, no doubt flashing and onsighting, if you just kind of lump them together as, you know, sub-disciplines of, of the first attempt at something, sending something on the first attempt, uh, yeah. is significantly a different experience than working a route or working a boulder and red-pointing sure. right? So let's maybe shift our sights towards that before we get into specific tactics and this kind of thing, which um, I'm excited to dive in with you. But can you speak to what the value is, both as a climber, but also maybe just experientially, of putting some emphasis on flashing or onsite. Yeah, I think there's a big
0: misconception that learning to redpoint won't help your onsighting, and leaning into onsighting won't help your red pointing. But I don't think that's true at all, because I think one of the things that onsighting or flashing brings to the table is a heightened level of adaptability and decision making, you know, when it counts the most, like it's high stakes. If you fall off, it's done. You don't get another try to onsite or to flash. And I think that's a really important thing for us to embrace is not having that other try and there being a finality to this thing that we're trying to do. So that puts a lot of pressure on us and forces us to make quick decisions And if you want to speed up your red pointing process, the best thing you can do is become adaptable to different situations and get better at making decisions. And by red pointing, you're working through lots of different body positions and small nuances that make big differences and starting to learn those things inform your decision-making process when you're climbing on a route. You know, you know that now not all side pulls are created equal. You don't just automatically backstep when you grab a side pull. There are seven other variations of this movement you can do and you can run through those really quickly based on the situation that you're in the more times you've encountered it. So I think
1: the two are extremely valuable for each other. And clearly... This is a discipline or an area of focus that could be a lifelong journey. You mentioned Jonathan Segrist just a second ago. You've got some climbers, in fact, this season on Written in Stone talking about this. Maybe you could Mm -hmm. highlight just what comes to mind as maybe some of the most impressive or most noteworthy flashes or onsites. Sure. For me personally, one of the
0: most impressive I've ever seen was... At the time, it was my big project. I was working on trans world depravity in the madness cave, and I knew everyone who was working on the route. And this little blonde haired, rosy cheeked kid walks up. You know, he looks like he's about 12 or 13. And he's like, Do you mind if I give it a try? And I'm like, Sure. I just came down. I'm going to be resting a long time. You know, take your time up there. Have at it. And this kid gets on and just fucking walks it with. No problem, you know? Oh, no. No, he didn't slow down for a second. And it was, you know, before we knew who he was, it was a young, fresh-faced Alex Magos and proceeded to immediately lower down and onside a 13C and then lower down and go onside another 13C and, you know, just crushing. And I I love seeing that sort of confident decision-making on the wall. You know, he knows what he can do and he immediately just decides to do it. And I think that's so cool. And, you know, people like Adam Ondra have really made a career out of this where they really test themselves on really hard onsites, you know. Certainly not his hardest onsite, but the onsite of just do it comes to mind for me because it was so impressive. It's an old school route. It's very technical And conditions can go really wrong on a route like that, where it's tiny holds and it's in the shade and it's cold. You could numb out. So you have to hit the conditions right. And it's such a pressurized game. And I mean, he's probably
1: the best onsider we've ever seen. Yeah, and that, so that, you know, classic route up first 14C in the U.S. at Smith Rock just, yeah, looks to what you were saying earlier about when you were on your project. It seems hard to see the holds. It's not straightforward, like climbing at the Red River Gorge. Alex Magos, by the way, then obviously still a fresh-faced kid on the scene for the most part. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Went on to flash. I think his hardest flash is 9A, 14D. Yeah, he did the first 9A
0: flash, or first 9A on-site, I think.
1: yeah. So this is, you're hitting a level of mastery when you can go up to a route that's going to be incredibly difficult, even if you know the moves and you're able to put it together for those of us who let's bring it back to earth for a second here, for those of us yeah. who aren't Alex Vegas, who aren't Adam Mandra, who aren't Katie Brown, for those of us who maybe are climbing. Let's say we're a five eleven climber. Is there a, a rough rule of thumb that you have? That says well you know maybe you should be trying to flash or on-site at a certain grade yeah i think there's a rule of thumb that i think holds
0: true for the most part and it'll let you know whether you need to work on one or the other i think red pointing or on-site or flashing and most people can on-site you know if they're a well-rounded climber they can on-site Roughly around one full number grade on the Yosemite scale below their hardest red point. So if we look at, you know, Adam Andra, he's on sighted 14D. He might have, he may have on sighted 15A or flashed 15A by now. For some reason, I think I remember seeing that. But he's I think, also he red pointing 15D. Right. Yeah. So okay. on site roughly a number, and flash, you could do another letter or two. So. You know, Alex Magos on sighting 14C and 14D, and he's red pointing, you know, 15C around that same level, 15D. So, uh, in general, that's how it works. So, I would say if you're, if you know that your on is like, say, 12B and your hardest red point is 12C then you probably need to work on your red pointing and go try some harder projects and and really give yourself a chance to do a harder project. And vice versa, if your hardest send is 12D, but your hardest onsite is 11A, you probably need to step up the onsite attempts, given that you have that those climbs available.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that rule of thumb. How nice to be able to look at that and see that that, that road goes both ways. And yeah. Uh, to your point, if it's a very narrow gap between your flash and your red point, maybe you uh, have some discomfort around totally. working routes that are hard, right? Or pulling mm-hmm. limit moves or dealing with kind of perceived failure and these kinds of things. And vice versa, if it's a wide chasm, maybe you have a hard time being decisive on a route or climbing quickly, or maybe it's a fear of falling or these kinds of things and that that we'll all yep. dive into. But I love how... That can be a mirror towards what style climber you are, but also really highlight some areas of potential improvement that will then benefit both sides, which I think is critical and why we're having this conversation here, because we can become better climbers all around by focusing on flashing and onsighting. We've been talking For about short sure. grades. So before we dive into some of the specific tactics here, is there any difference with the applicability mm. of, of what we're talking about here when it comes to bouldering?
0: Yeah. So a lot of people will say you can't onsite a boulder. Hmm. I've heard a lot of boulders make this argument. I don't buy it though. I think you can. Maybe the hardest boulders that you've seen videos of for years, no, you can't onsite those anymore. But if you just walk up to a boulder field and go in and climb a thing, in my opinion, you're still onsiting it. Now, there is one big difference between flashing boulders and flashing roots that I personally feel doesn't apply to roots, even though it does to boulders. And that's that boulders, you can pretty much touch all the holds um, and still call it a flash attempt. So you can, and and I've seen people get ladders, you know, wrap down over a boulder, feel all the holds, tick all the holds, even put themselves into position to see how a foothold might, you know, fit, but they're not pulling on. And then they count their flash attempt as when they pull off the ground. So I don't go quite that far. Usually, flashing boulders isn't as interesting to me, maybe because of that. I do like to try to on site boulders, but flashing them isn't as interesting to me because of all that preparation. Um, though it's a really cool, cool thing to see someone flash a really hard boulder. I think, you know, maybe Jimmy Webb is one of the best flash climbers we've ever seen and sadly there was a video of him in rocklands that i think is gone off the internet now um but it was showing him flashing a bunch of v13s in rocklands and it's one of the most amazing displays of climbing i've ever seen so the the people who take that to its limit are incredible
1: yeah it's oh, crazy. I love it. Uh, so so I think, you know, at least what I'm gleaning from the first uh, tee up of this conversation, we can get into application now, is that yeah. those who are are doing this at a high level, the, you know, Andres, Pagos, Katie Brown, you've mentioned Jonathan Segrist, Jimmy Webb, the, these folks are not just walking up and saying, well, I'm, you know, this is going to be a bit of a warm up mm-hmm. for me. Let me just see if I yeah. can get to the top. They're looking at this as a very special, unique opportunity. To your point, you get one shot, right? As Mm -hmm. soon as you fall, as soon as you weight that rope, or as soon as your butt hits the pad, you never get to try a flash attempt or an on-site of that route or that boulder again. And that's very different, at least speaking personally from me, like when I came out to the red, to what I would do, which is just kind of maybe roll up to a crag, have an idea of what I would want to climb, and just find something a little bit easier that would kind of quote unquote be the warm up. And then flash pump or take the hang or get scared of falling or whatever. And it would only be a flash, I guess, if I just happened to make it to the top. And then I'd be like, okay, well, I guess I flashed that. But it was never really something I was focused on or psyched on. And that seems to be quite different for those who are climbing these at at a higher level. And I wonder if those of us who are more at my level or, you know, kind of more beginner intermediate climbers should be looking at it in that through that lens as well, in your opinion. Yeah, I think so. I think most people do engage with on sighting and flashing
0: during their warm ups, and then it's just a byproduct of climbing and a relatively easy thing for them, you know? But I do think it's a really valuable thing to put that preparation in and to try to learn how to come into it and get into the right mindset and put that pressure on yourself. And I think all of that is so valuable for what comes down the road in your climbing. You know, if you expect to continue progressing, which I hope we all do, you're going to get to a point where you're put into a pressurized situation. If you want to climb the best routes of any grade, there're going to be people there. There's going to be a crowd. There's, you know, you're going to go on a trip and you're going to be at the last day of your trip and still want to send this thing. So there's pressure's going to come and I think on and flashing is a really fantastic way to introduce that pressure yourself and learn how to deal with it.
1: Oh, I like that. That's great. Well, let's dive in then and um, explore some of the tactics that you find are most critical when it comes to this area of focus.
0: Let's start at like choosing whether to try to on-site and flash or not. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're getting on something, so step number one, I think, when you're warming up for the day, if you know later you're going to be trying a difficult on a really valuable tactic you can use is get on your warm-up, something that's pretty easy for you, ideally one you haven't done a hundred times already, that you know you're going to on-site, but then force yourself to commit to your decisions. Usually on an easy thing, we have time to like feel around and find the best sequence and find the rest stances. And we spend way more time than we would if we were just red pointing, but treat it like it's a hard onsite and commit to your decisions. And you'll be, you'll get yourself into that mind space, that headspace that you are committing. If you can use the hold, use it. Keep climbing. If you can do the move, do it. Don't look for the easier scenario. You might turn your 10C warm-up into 11B by doing this, but did you make it up? Did you onsite it? That's the important thing. Um, And then you can take that faster decision-making over to the harder onsites. And you can recognize, did I make good decisions? Or were those just bad decisions and I was surviving, you know? You can do all of that stuff on your warm-ups if you sort of put those constraints into place and force yourself to do that. But then when you're approaching a harder route, you have to make the decision. And I think it's important to make the decision. Do you want to try to on-site or flash it or do you want to try to do it second try, third try? Is it a, a mini project? Because how you leave the ground, how you set yourself up is different for the two. If you're going up to project something or to do it second or third try, you're leaving the ground with curiosity, trying to find the best sequences, willing to say take when it makes sense to do that. But an on-site or a flash, number one, you should leave the ground with that in mind. Like, I'm not going to say take. Unless it's a dangerous situation, which most of the time you can suss out from the ground, whether it's a boulder or a root, you know, you know where the bolts are, you know how to pad the landing. And if you are trying to site, pad the landing well. Don't, you know, don't wait for like you get up to the crux and you're like, oh, I might swing this way when I fall off. Figure that out on the ground, you know, really pay attention to where the fall zones might be. Make sure it's padded out. Make sure you've told your spotters and your belayers, I'm, I'm trying to on-site. Don't yell beta at me, you know, and if the crowd is, if the crag is crowded, you might even want to talk to the people around you who are also trying this route and say, don't feed me beta, you know, don't say anything while I'm up there. I'm trying to on-site.
1: Right. I mean, having been at, you know, some popular crags at the red here recently as we're into October and every route is, you know, four deep, it's quite common. And I don't think it's Uh, malicious, but it's quite common for people to just get psyched and want to yell some beta towards people. And and you don't know if somebody, if you come up and somebody's climbing, you don't know they might be going for the onsite. So I think as a general rule, it's always nice to ask somebody first, Hey, do you want some beta? Mm -hmm. You know, even if they're on a rest on a route or they're tying in, Hey, do you want some beta? That gives them the opportunity to say yes or no. But you brought up a really good, I think, a point there. An interesting point on perhaps one of the reasons why there's this disparity between a flash and a red point of being maybe a number grade on YDS. And at least for me, this applies. And that's fear, fear of falling, fear of, I don't know if that's going to be good up there. Am I going to spike You know, like once you've been on a route a handful of times, you tend to get a little bit more comfortable moving more fluidly, taking falls, taking whips, these kinds of things, which you don't. So is there anything that you recommend to your clients or that you implement when you're going for a hard flash to help try to remove some of the fear so that you can climb with as much flow as possible knowing that, you know, that's one of the one of the challenges of flashing is that you're not going to know everything, right? Yeah. I think it takes a lot of practice.
0: You know, it's not something you're going to click into just immediately the first time you try it. And for me number one, it's helpful to have a routine before I get on the route. If I know I'm going to try to on site something, I go through my like hard climbing routine, which is take my harness off, put it back on. I feel like I'm suiting.
1: And that there wraps up your free intro on flashing and on sighting with the one and only Chris Hampton. But guess what y'all, don't turn it off right now because you can hear the full Pro Clinic, another 55 minutes of amazing stuff right now, for absolutely zero cost. Hell yes, that's what I'm talking about. What does Chris cover in the rest of this pro clinic, you might be wondering? Well, managing fear on an on-site, how to train flash tactics at the gym, what we can learn from Adam Andra's mental game when it comes to on sighting and flashing, tricks on how to read a route from the ground, the biggest flaw that Chris has found in most people's on-site and flash attempts, how to choose a route that suits you, and then at the end, Chris coaches me on how to bump up my hardest flash grade to 12A this fall. It is all there for patrons and subscribers totally free right now with a trial membership. And that's also gonna score you, by the way, instant access to every other Pro Clinic and bonus episode that we've done, from Ravioli Biceps breaking down the moon board, to Drew Mac on how to build endurance, to Alice Vest on advanced bouldering tactics, and so much more. I think you're gonna love it, and I think you're gonna wanna stick around as a paying member, but if you don't, then just quit before your free trial is up and you won't be charged a thing. Now I'm working my harness off over here in the podcast slash utility closet, so your all support is really what makes this possible. Heck, I might even be able to make a run at having this be my full-time gig if you guys find value in what I'm doing and you're willing to part with a few bucks each month, which would be so, so rad. So, thank you. I really appreciate you checking it out. And you can do it right now for zero cost. Just pop over to patreon.com slash show to get that free trial going. Or if you're an iPhone person, you can double-click for free right now in your Apple Podcast app. Thank you all so much. I love you. Now remember to check out all the great stuff that Chris has going on, and man does he always have some great stuff going on. You can find him on IG, at Power Company Climbing, and you can and should check out his newest podcast series, Written in Stone. Oh my gosh, it is so well done, y'all. You should go listen to it right now, or actually you should go listen to it after you finish listening to this full episode and flash your hardest grade, then go listen to Written in Stone. The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry, including, by the way, all of Chris's podcasts. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you're struggling like I am, well, at least we all know that the struggle makes us stronger. See y'all soon.